We won't do a responsive reading tonight, but uh, just when I speak, every once in a while, I'll just say, Alleluia, Amen, and I'll be, uh, I'll be good with that. Don't worry about interrupting me. Just, uh, uh, this has been a good night, I tell you, choir. Wow, what great music tonight. Cynthia, amazing, amazing music tonight. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That prayer was prayed 463 years ago. It was um, October the 6th, 1536, when William Tyndale prayed that prayer publicly for more than 10 years. Tyndale had been a, a fugitive on the continent laboring to translate the Bible into the common language for the people of England. It was um, against the law to put the Bible into the vernacular of the people, but, but he prayed that prayer and shortly afterward an executioner took his life. Mark Devers, a pastor in Washington, D.C., observes that God's people have faced many challenges and often seem to have been defeated. Second Kings, the book of Second Kings, is a biblical portrait of this, when by the end of the book, it feels as though the right have failed and the wrong have prevailed. But even then, especially then, the book of Second Kings reminds us that God is still working, that He is still on His throne. And sometimes when it feels like the beginning of the end. It's really rather the end of the beginning. Would you open your Bibles with me tonight to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. We are in a, a series of studies of the books of the Bible, one sermon for each book, and uh, we looked at the Torah initially. We're now in a historical section of Joshua and, and Judges and Ruth and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. It feels as though First Samuel through Second Kings were written, those four books, at about the same time. We'll see that First and Second Chronicles cover that same period of history, but with a, a little bit different view or perspective, really focusing on David and the Davidic dynasty in Judah. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word tonight? And I choose, as I noted last week, if we looked at 1 Kings as the decline of the nation of Israel and Judah, we might think of 2 Kings as the fall, the decline and then the fall. But in each of these um, passages, we find that there are characters who see God when everybody else does not. Elisha is such a character, and so I read to you from 2 Kings chapter 6, and I begin reading in verse 15, when all seems to be lost. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more 
than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And as the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told him, this is not the road. This is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. And they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram, or Syria, stopped raiding Israel's territory. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we left off with Elijah in somewhat of a personal pity party, crying for his own trouble and saying, I'm the only one left, though God had reserved 7,000. And God never answered his prayer. He said, "I remember what he said, I just want to die. Lord, take my life. I just want to die. And The Lord never answered that prayer in the affirmative. In fact, he never took Elijah's life. But he did say to Elijah, I have things for you to do. And when Elijah happened on Horeb, when he came to the mountain of God, that same place where the burning bush that was not consumed, God had appeared to Moses and spoken to him out of that bush. At that same place, there is an earthquake and there is a fire and there is a tornado. And then, as the uh, NRSV says, out of the sheer silence... In a still, small voice, God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah recites his pre-planned message to God, and God says, yes, well, there are a few things that I have for you to do, like anointing a couple of kings and anointing a successor. And remember, he throws a cloak over the shoulders of Elisha, and Elisha says, well, okay, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Elijah says, go ahead. What have I done to you? And Elisha will begin to walk with Elijah, become his shadow. And everywhere Elijah goes, Elisha goes. And Elijah tries to let him off the hook and says, hey, you don't have to go with me. You you can just, uh, you know, I've got some business. You just stay behind. Elisha said, I will not let you out of my sight. And he was there. After they crossed the Jordan, after Elijah took his mantle and struck the Jordan and walked across, and he and Elisha walked across, and then Elijah was taken up with the chariots and horsemen of heaven, the fires of heaven, take him up in a whirlwind, and Elisha is left there with Elijah's mantle. He has asked for only one thing, a double portion of his master's spirit. And his master said, you recall, you have asked a hard thing. 
But because he was there, he received that that mantle, that double portion of his spirit. He walked back to that same river Jordan and he struck the waters and said, where now is the God of Elijah? And the God of Elijah was right there. And the waters parted and Elisha walked across and began a rather remarkable ministry. If you recall all the things that Elisha was involved in, the ways that he was a blessing to others, the ways that he ministered to others. And we find him, oh, in, in chapter 3 when Moab revolts and then the widow's oil and the, the uh, multiplication of the oil and then the, the Shunammite woman and her husband who prepare a place and say, a holy man of God has passed our way and they make prophets quarters for him, we would call them. And Elisha stays there with them. And then he gives them the desire of their heart, a child, but the child dies. And he raises the child back to life again. He, he heals the, the, uh, the stew in a way that, that there is no longer death in the pot. And then there is a, a feeding of a hundred that looks remarkably like later uh, a feeding of 5,000. And then there is Naaman who comes convinced by a little servant girl who's been captured by the Syrian armies. A little Israelite servant girl says, oh, if you only went to Israel, there's a prophet there who can heal you. And Naaman goes and, and finally in obedience finds healing. And, and Elisha, like Elijah before him, stands so closely in the counsel of God. He knows what's going on in heaven so well that he is fully apprised of what is going on on the earth. So when the king of Syria plots against Israel, Elisha always is one step ahead of him and is feeding the information. And the king of Syria is so angry, he says, okay, which one of you is a traitor? Which one of you is leaking the information to the enemy? And they say, none of us is betraying you. But they do have Elisha on their side, and Elisha is on the side of God. And Elisha knows everything that goes on in the inner rooms of this palace. He has access to that information because he has access to the God who has that information. And the king of Syria, in blind rage, says, I'll kill him. So he sends a great army, and the army surrounds uh, the city of Dothan. Some of you have been to Dothan, Alabama, named, I presume, after Dothan. And there in Dothan is Elisha and his servant, and they go to sleep one night in complete freedom, and they wake up the next morning, and they are surrounded by the armies of Syria. And here is the metaphor that I want us to see in the book of Second Kings. The, the story is that, that there is one, Elisha, who sees more than we can see with the human eye. He sees beyond the armies of Syria. He sees the chariots and armies of heaven itself, which are surrounding him. But his servant awakens, and all he sees are the armies of Syria. Have you been there this week? Have you been to that place where all you can see are the problems? And so Elisha looks at his servant and prays for him and says, God, open his eyes so that he may see that those who are for us are more than those who are for them. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If God is for us, Paul would write to the church at Rome, who then can be against us? And when he opens his eyes, he sees that these chariots are greater and 
more powerful and that they are fully safe in God's keeping. And then, and then Elisha prays that the Syrian army, the Aramean Syrian army might be blinded, and they are. And it's sort of like a Yoda moment, if you're familiar with Star Wars, where he says, you're, you're, you don't know who you're looking for, but follow me. And they follow sort of blindly after him, really blindly after him, into the city of Samaria, where they are completely captured. And the, the king, the young king of, of Israel, who reigns there in Samaria, this northern kingdom, says, what do I do? Do I kill him? And Elisha says, no, feed them. Feed your enemies. Elisha's ahead of his time, isn't he? He, he hearkens to the one who ministers in that same sort of power in the Gospel of John. Look at the miracles of Jesus, the Samiah, the signs, and see how closely they parallel the miracles of Elisha. And Elisha says, no, feed them and send them home. And after that, they no longer attack the people. There's a truth in that story. And what I want you to notice in the book of 2 Kings is there are people who see and people who don't. I know that's overly simplistic, and I apologize for the simplicity of it, but there are, there are people who see, people who see God, people who see God clearly, people who see God vividly, people who can't see anything but God, people like Elisha, people like Hezekiah, people like Josiah. And then there are myriad other people who for the life of them can't see God. They are blind. Some of them are voluntarily blind. Some of them are only blind because they cover their eyes and close their eyes and pretend like there is no God. And they live with a functional atheism. I mean, they know there's a God, but they are so wrapped up in their own idolatry that in the day-to-day -day activities of their lives, they act as though there is not a God. And though thousands of years have come and gone since Elisha's time, I'm pretty convinced in this world, dare I say in this room, there are basically two kinds of people. There are those who see God, and there are those who do not see God. And I wonder if you were to put yourself in one of those two categories, if you were to sort of seek a line that you are in, where would you, in honesty before God, find yourself? And what you notice in the book of 2 Kings is that there are some people who see God and there's some people who don't see God, but all the time, God sees them all. He sees everything. He sees 29 kings. And I know you who have heard me preach before think I'm going to go through every one of them. Be at ease. Rest easily tonight. I am not going to go through all 29 kings. But I can simply say to you that there are some of them who saw God. Just a few. There are most of them who did not see God. But every one of them lived every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of their lives in full view of God. And so, by the way, do we. He sees. <laughs> you are the God who sees. In the book of Exodus, we read, he saw his people. He came down to Moses and said, 
I have seen. And every time a king is described in the book of 2 Kings, it says either he did what was right or he did what was evil. But always it says what? In the eyes of the Lord. God sees. And the fact that he sees ought to drive us tonight to a place of repentance where we say to God what Elisha prayed for his servant. Oh God, open my eyes that I may see what you are doing in this world. It's overly simplistic. But let me just show you tonight. There's some people who could not for the life of them see God. You don't even have to get out of, of chapter 1 of 2 Kings to see a king of Israel, who, by the way, is a son of Ahab and Jezebel. We, can we just agree tonight? He didn't have a great spiritual heritage. He's got a dad and a mom who, you know, who... Who, who, who would not know God if he walked right up to them. They are so absorbed in their worship of Baal. And when this, this king of Israel, Ahaziah is his name, not to be confused with a, a later Ahaziah in the book, who's the king of Judah, but Ahaziah, king of Israel, gets sick. And knowing that he's sick, as a good Israelite, a member of the holy heritage of the people of God, what does he do to find out what's going to happen with his illness, to discern the outcome of his illness? He sends his best messengers to Ekron, one of the Philistine cities, to consult with a god named Baal-zebub to find out whether he's going to survive or not. And... uh, Elijah hears about it. Elijah's still on the scene. And Elijah hears about it, and he goes to meet the messengers who are on the way to Baal-zebub in Ekron in the Philistine city and asks this simple question. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you have to go to a nothing God to find out what's going to happen to you? You can be assured. Just go back and tell your king he's going to die. And so they go back and they say, we were headed to Baal-zebub, but before we got there, we were, we were unceremoniously intercepted by Elijah, and he told us to tell you, is it because there is no God in Israel that you have to go off to some foreign, pagan, nothing of a deity? You're going to die. And uh, he wouldn't take it at, at face value, so he decided to send some of his men. And you can read it. A bunch of people die because of his foolishness. And by the way, our sin not only costs us, it costs other people, doesn't it? And ultimately, ultimately, Elijah goes himself and he says, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you would send to a foreign, pagan, nothing of a God to find out the outcome? You're going to die. And he died. Now, I know that's, a, that's a, a painful kind of story, but it's just an example. There are other examples in the story of Naaman, the Syrian, the, the little servant girl who's been captured. She knows that there's a God in Israel. But when Naaman shows up with all of his multitude of gifts to the king of Israel and says, I heard you've got somebody here who can heal me, the king of Israel is absolutely at a loss. He has no idea that there is a God who can actually heal leprosy. The good news is, uh, in the story, Elisha knows, and Elisha sends and says, send him to me, and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel, that there is a, our king is spiritually clueless, but at least there is somebody 
who knows something. Eugene Peterson says, when we find ourselves deficient in wisdom, it is not because the Word of God has pages missing, but because we have not seen all there is on the pages we already have. It's not another book that we need, but better attention to the book that we have. It's not more knowledge we require, but better vision to see what has already been revealed in Jesus Christ. And the sum, the conclusion of these who do not see God, or should I say, who will not see God, because as the uh, famous uh, uh, singer uh, Kenny Rogers says, there's no one blinder than he who just won't see. If you look closely, you will discover in chapter 17 that the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria in the year 722, and the southern kingdom of Judah learns nothing from the experience of the northern kingdom of Israel, and 135 years later in 587, they fall to Babylon as well, because they will not see the end of the story of those who don't want to see God is found in the 25th chapter there where Amazingly, the son of Josiah, that great king, has a, has a son named Zedekiah. First, he has a son named Jehoahaz who rules for a while in wickedness. And then when he dies, Jehoiakim comes to the throne, another son of Josiah. And when he dies, then his son, Josiah's grandson, Jehoiakim, is carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. But they set up another one of Josiah's sons, an uncle of Jehoiakim, to be the, the king, and he rebels against Babylon after about nine years, and, and um, Nebuchadnezzar comes back with his general Nebuzaradan, and they let Zedekiah watch them kill Zedekiah's sons. And then they blind Zedekiah, so the last thing he ever sees is the killing of his own sons. The wages of sin is death. Again, Eugene Peterson in the message translates that. Work hard, for your, work hard for sin your whole life and your pension will be death. Or as somebody said, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. English author H.G. Wells, famous for science fiction novels like The Time Machine and The Invisible Man and The War of the Worlds, once wrote a lesser-known short story called The Country of the Blind. It's a remarkable story about a, a people in Ecuador who have lost their sight because of a dreaded disease. Fifteen generations have come and gone. They never knew that anybody, they no longer knew that anybody had ever seen until a man stumbles off a cliff and somehow survives and finds himself among them and discovers that they are blind, but they don't know that they're blind. And he falls in love with a beautiful young woman who is the daughter of a man named Yaakov and and Jacob uh, goes finally to the doctor and says, what can we do about this boy? He keeps trying to convince people that there's such a thing as sight, and he's really insane. And the doctor says, well, I think if we would get rid of those irritant bodies, referring to his eyes, and blind him, then he would be sane. He would be perfectly sane and a quite admirable citizen. And Jacob ironically says, thank heaven for science. And Wells goes on to point out that the man would not be allowed to marry Jacob's daughter unless he submitted to an operation to blind him. And there's that dramatic moment in the story when this, this man, the outsider, goes to a little meadow and looks and watches the sunrise. 
And when he sees the sunrise marching in like an angel coming down the stairs, he says, he realizes that that world and that his love in that world and all of that would be no better than a pit of sin. That's the description. And he runs for his life and keeps his sight. Lee Eklov reflects on that story and and comes to the conclusion that that Jesus also looked at our world in that way and said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And Jesus didn't pull us out of this world, but He did send His Spirit to us so that we might convince this world of its spiritual blindness. There are people who just don't see God. But thankfully, in the story of 2 Kings, there are also people who do see God. As Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And some of them do see. There's actually one good king of of Israel, just for your reference. You can look it up sometime this week. But in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 4, Jehoahaz has a good moment where he seeks the Lord's favor and the Lord listens to him. And then in in chapters uh, 14 and 15, there are kings Amaziah and Azariah, better known as Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died. Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham, his son, all of Judah, and they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then the best examples are the two kings I mentioned earlier, Hezekiah, whose story is told in chapters 18 and 19. Ironically, Hezekiah is the the son of a very evil king of Judah. Hezekiah does not have great spiritual heritage, at least not immediate spiritual heritage, but he finds himself at odds with Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, this king of Assyria, wants to destroy Judah and sends him a very ugly letter. And Isaiah, the prophet, who also sees God, as Elisha has seen God, tells Hezekiah, don't pay any attention to him. He will be destroyed and defeated. And in chapter 19, verses 14 to 16, Hezekiah spreads that letter from the evil king Sennacherib out before the Lord, and he prays a beautiful prayer. And I just want you to hear his prayer in verse 16. This is what he says, Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It's true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Verse 19, Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from His hands so that all kingdoms on earth may know that You alone are God. Finally, a king who sees. And because of that, his life is spared not only from Sennacherib, but later he has an illness and And God spares his life again because he humbles himself and prays. You can read that in chapter 20. But between him and Josiah, there is a couple of other wicked kings. It is actually Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Don't ask me to explain it, but sometimes righteousness skips generations. Not by necessity, but I think by by cause of human choice. Manasseh, who had a great and godly father, chose to blind his own heart to the ways of God. We've talked about him and his wickedness. It is really, again and again, the scriptures will say it is his sin that causes Judah to go into captivity, though 
kings will come and go after him. It is Manasseh's sin. And then there is Ammon, king of Judah. And then we find an eight-year-old king in chapter 22 named Josiah. I've told you his story before. He became king at the age of eight. He did what was right, verse 2 of chapter 22, in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He had to go way back in his spiritual ancestry to find somebody who loved God. I remember years ago going up to Tennessee and discovering that I had a three great-grandfather whose name was Levi Brooks who planted churches in Tennessee during the Civil War and after the Civil War. And I took comfort in the fact that there was a a follower of Christ in my heritage. Josiah has to go all the way back to David. Hezekiah is, I understand, a great-grandfather. But beyond that, Josiah is more like David perhaps than any of the other kings. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And remember, they find a book. They find a scroll. Hilkiah, the high priest, is is, uh, digging through, doing a sort of spring cleaning of the temple an overdue spring cleaning, and he finds a book. We think probably the book of Deuteronomy, the second book of the law. And when Josiah hears what God wanted from his people and sees the way his people have lived, he tears his clothes in anguish before God. He repents, he humbles himself, and when the king humbles himself, he asks everybody to humble themselves. He wants everybody to get right with God, and he turns to the Lord with all his might. And it says, I think echoing the words that Carol spoke to our children this morning, it says in chapter 23, he turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. That sounds like Deuteronomy, doesn't it? He gave his heart to God. Not that Josiah turned the tide perfectly himself. He himself would die at the hands of Pharaoh Necho, Josiah died, but I'll tell you about Josiah. And by the way, we all die, except Elijah and Enoch and those who are alive when Christ returns. Yeah, Josiah died, but he didn't fail God because he lived with his eyes wide open. Bob Russell tells about Anthony Berger. Some of you know that name, the gospel accompanist for the Gaither vocal band. He was on a cruise with the Gaithers uh, just a few years ago, and He was playing a concert in the presence of about 1,500 Christian friends uh, one night. And while he was playing the song, We Shall Behold Him, he slumped over at the piano at the age of 44 and he was gone. We shall behold him. Serving God does not guarantee that we will never have problems, but we have this promise. If we choose to open our eyes here, we will not only see him here, but we will see God, the God who sees us. Forever. So what do we learn from 2 Kings? If we close our eyes to God and His work in the world, we will soon become accustomed to the darkness. But there is hope for us because in this broken world, we can repent. We can turn. There are examples in 2 Kings, like Josiah, of people who when they finally saw who God was and then realized who they were, said, something has to change. And when they changed, other people changed. And God worked in that. There is hope because we can repent. And best of all, there is hope because of God's great promises. You can look it up for yourself this week, but at least three times in the book of 2 Kings, God chooses to wait and withhold His judgment because of His faithfulness to His own promises. In chapter 8, verse 19, chapter 13, verse 23, chapter 20, verse 6, we are reminded that if we open our eyes to God and His work, 
in our world, we will see that God is with us to deliver us and to strengthen us. I know this looks like the beginning of the end for Israel, but it is really just the end of the beginning. It's a time when God will get their undivided attention in captivity, in exile. And Tyndale prayed, open the eyes of the king of England. And less than a year later, that same translation of the Bible, which had been forbidden, which, for which he had been persecuted and killed, was published in England. Tyndale's translation, the work that he had done with Miles Coverdale, that work was published in England with the king's imprimatur on it because God honored the life of a man who chose when all the world around him was closing its eyes to the truth. Because he opened his eyes and saw God, God used him. I read some time ago a story of a young pastor who was struggling in his ministry. And he went to a mentor, to an older pastor, and he said, I want you to pray something for me. And the older pastor said, what do you want me to pray for you? And he said, I have come to the place in my ministry when I think I can no longer see God. Would you pray for me that I might be able to see God? And the older pastor said, I will be delighted to pray that for you. But I have to tell you, even as I pray that for you, I come to it from a very different perspective. I have a very different problem. And the young pastor said, and what is that? And the older pastor said, I cannot not see him. May God bring us to the place this week that amidst the busyness of our lives and our schedules and the going from point A to point B and keeping up with the, the gerbils and all the things that we do in this life to sort of make life worthwhile, may it be this week that we will not close our eyes, that we will open our eyes and we will say with the hymn writer, open our eyes that we may see glimpses of truth you have for us Open my eyes. Illumine me. Spirit divine. Would you pray with me? Oh God, the God who sees us, would you help us tonight, Lord? Would you lift as you did for the Apostle Paul when his name was still Saul? Would you remove the shingles from our eyes that we may see Open our eyes, Lord. We, we want to see Jesus. Reach out and touch Him and say that we love Him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.